Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's the 29th of September, 1935. A young woman called Susan Haynes Johnson has taken a well-deserved holiday from her busy life in Edinburgh, Scotland. Along with a friend, she sought to spend her holiday in nature, to escape the city smog and bask in the fresh air of the Scottish countryside. The women packed their bags with blissful anticipation and headed for the rolling hills of Dumfrieshire. As they began their hike, they clambered over craggy rock formations and passed through vibrant green fields. The women felt free. They approached the Gardenholm Lynn stream, a small tributary of the River Arran. As Susan crossed the small stone bridge, she paused, leant on the parapet, and watched the waters flow which filled her with peace. But as she did so, a small object caught her attention. Lodged against a boulder on the banks of the stream, she saw a bundle of fabric and newspaper. Out here, of course, such a sight was unusual. She inspected it further, and rather than some careless littering, Susan discovered that in fact the fabric and newspaper were there to obscure a decomposing human arm. Understandably panicked, the two tourists raced to the nearest telephone box, removed the handset and dialed 999. Little did they, nor the Dumfrieshire Constabulary know at the time that this discovery would be the start of a sensational whodunit that would grip the entire country. One that would lead to a remarkable leap in forensic science. And little did they know they would have those small cutouts of newspaper to thank for solving a gruesome double murder. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. 
I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun. The newspaper. Moffat is situated about 60 miles southeast of Glasgow, Scotland. It's a small parish with a population of around 2,500. In the 1600s, many used to visit the village for its spas. The sulphurous and saline waters of the area were believed to be key in the healing of skin complaints and arthritis. And the hills surrounding Moffat provided the perfect terrain for rustlers who raided and robbed unsuspecting victims all along the border between England and Scotland to hide their stolen cattle. That sparsely populated and serene terrain later made perfect ground for exploring the British countryside. To their shock, Scottish police discovered it also presented the perfect location to hide mutilated human remains. Well, almost perfect. Quickly after hearing the panicky 999 call, officers arrived at a small bridge near the village of Moffat. They inevitably thought the account of a severed limb must be a mistake, but as they inspected the bundle of fabric beside the stream, they too found what appeared to be a human arm. Police swiftly cordoned off the area and expanded the search to encompass the surrounding region and the nearby River Annan. They had an arm. Surely the body it belonged to must be out there somewhere. The detectives scoured the land and combed the riverbanks. Their search threw up more and more body parts in more and more wrapped packages. Severed fingers, legs sections of flesh, and most startlingly, two heads. Dumfrieshire police had the gruesome job of gathering the array of human remains and transporting them to the anatomy department at the University of Edinburgh. In total, they discovered 70 different sections of the bodies of two women. The remains were passed into the possession of a team of pioneering forensic academics, headed up by Professor John Glaister, Jr., which also counted the leading anatomist, James Cooper Brash, amongst its members. Brash was quick to deduce that whoever had been responsible for the deaths and subsequent mutilation of these victims had to have an expert grasp on human anatomy. The bodies had been dismembered and disfigured using a surgical knife and professional precision. Despite surmising that the two women were of different ages, it became clear that whoever was responsible for their deaths had purposely made the task of identification near impossible. The eyes had been removed, so too much of the skin and the teeth from the skulls. The fingertips had been carved away, eradicating the chance to identify the victims. The rapidly decomposing body parts 
were first treated with ether and preserved in a formaldehyde solution to allow for Professor John Glaister to get to work on the painstaking post-mortem. Glaister's team were tasked with the seemingly impossible. They had to innovatively narrow down the police's search to help them identify who these two women were. The team sat around their university office to discuss what to do next. They brainstormed from their vast array of forensic expertise. The technique they landed on, though, was groundbreaking. Forensic entomology. Once on the embalming table in the modern anatomy department of the University of Edinburgh, the professors discovered maggots feeding on the decomposing body parts. They knew who to call. Alexander Mearns was based in Glasgow, where he was gaining a reputation for the skillful use of insect activity to determine time of death. A sample of maggots was sent to Alexander's offices. He immediately went to work on them, flicking through his definitive collection of textbooks. Studying his previous papers of similar insects, Alexander identified these particular creatures as the pupa of the Califora vicina, a specific type of blowfly. Based on the size and stage the pupa were in, he was able to draw a vital conclusion that the body parts could not have been disposed of in the location they were found after the 17th of September 1935. These two women must have gone missing on or before that date. It was, for detectives, a lead. Bukhtaya Chompa Rustamji Ratanji Hakim was born in the busy Indian city of Bombay in 1899. He was an exceedingly bright student, far outperforming his peers at school. He was also a sensitive, lonely child, but that didn't hinder his dream of becoming a doctor. By 1922, the good-looking Bukhtayar had qualified at the prestigious University of Bombay. He'd soon go on to become a medical officer to the Malaria Commission, then a well-respected surgeon. And he'd go on to marry a well-to-do, beautiful Parsi woman called Moti. Life seemed to be going his way, but there was a yearning for something more. In fact, there was a yearning for a totally different life to the one he had successfully built in India. In 1926, a year after his wedding, Bukhtayar moved to Britain and changed his name by deed poll to Buck Ruxton. The young Buck did everything he could to conceal his marriage in India and sought to create a radically new identity for himself. His plan hit a bump in the road in 1927, though. After spending a year at the University College Hospital in London, Buck moved to Edinburgh in an attempt to obtain a fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons. He studied night and day, determined and driven by a dream. But both fortunately and unfortunately, while studying, he met and grew close to an endearing 26-year-old Scottish woman called Isabella Van S. The pair soon became inseparable. They were truly in love. And that love proved quite the distraction in the lead-up to Buck's medical exams. 
He sat in the examination hall in Edinburgh in 1927, scratching his head, thinking about his future, thinking about the answer to the exam question in front of him, and thinking about Isabella. He failed his exam. Luckily for young Buck, so good were his results from his studies in India that the General Medical Council disregarded his failure and he was duly authorised to practice in the UK. Buck and Isabella bounded from Edinburgh to London, where he established himself as a locum. Then on to Lancaster, in the north of England, where he aimed to set up a practice of his own, operating out of his home in Number 2 Dalton Square. During this time, Isabella gave birth. The couple's first child, a daughter named Kathleen Elizabeth, Buck's British dream was coming true. Everything from the outside appeared rosy for the new couple. Buck and Isabella were, by now, common-law husband and wife. She decided to go by the name Isabella Ruxton, and Buck's medical practice was picking up steam too. Local Lancastrians came to love his presence. In a time prior to the UK's National Health Service, Buck would often waive the fees for his hard-up patients. And despite being free, his medical treatment was professional and accomplished. He and his fledgling family came to be adored. A second child arrived, this time a boy they called William, shortly followed by a third, a daughter called Diana. And with his reputation going from strength to strength, the practice got busier by the day. So Buck resolved to hire a live-in housekeeper, a Mrs Mary Jane Rogerson. But behind the closed door of his understated three-storey townhouse, Dr Ruxton's life began to resemble that of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. You see, Buck was a deeply jealous man. He didn't trust Isabella one bit. Neighbours would often hear arguments between Buck and Isabella emanating from the dividing walls. He would, on many occasions, accuse his wife of infidelity. And the accusations were not simply verbal. On one occasion, Mary Jane Rogerson, the family's housekeeper, heard a commotion whilst tending to the Ruxton kids. As she nervously peered into the couple's bedroom, she saw Buck screaming at Isabella with his hands wrapped tightly round her neck. Buck chastised the maid, telling her to mind her own business. Time and time again in different ways, Buck's jealousy would lead to fits of suspicious rage and hysterical accusations of disloyalty. And time and time again, Isabella would pack up her things and drive with her kids the near five-hour trip north to Edinburgh. Buck, in tears, would plead down the phone for Isabella to return, and often she would. But this pattern persisted, driving Isabella to attempt suicide by inert gas asphyxiation in 1932. The local police would, on occasion, come to rescue Isabella from Buck's furious physical assaults in private. There were most definitely two distinct sides to the outwardly popular surgeon. On the 14th of September 1935, 
Isabella walked out of 2 Dalton Square and packed up the family car, a 1931 Hillman Minx. She told Buck she was going for a day trip with her sisters to see the famous Blackpool Illuminations, an annual lights festival in the seaside resort town. Isabella informed her husband that she would be returning that same evening. And she did. But at 11.30pm, as she opened the front door to the family home, she was faced with the wrath of a particularly paranoid buck. The ensuing commotion was by no means out of the ordinary for the housekeeper, Mary Jane Rogerson. But she thought she'd better check on the rowing couple regardless. For her, that would come to be a fatal decision. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before the 1930s, forensic scientists generally worked alone. They were often impervious to outside criticism or scrutiny. The most famous of these scientists was the pathologist, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, whose evidence led to the murder conviction of Dr. Crippen in 1910. He was unwavering in his self-belief and dogmatic in his approach. But the pioneering teamwork done in late 1935 in the labs of Edinburgh University would totally change the course of forensic pathology. Now, to any fan of true crime, the benefits of a team-led approach seem obvious. In the 1930s, it was revolutionary and it needed to be. The first use of DNA in criminal investigations was in 1986. In 1935, detectives had to rely on other, often ineffective means, to identify victims and search for perpetrators. Professor John Glaister and his team of forensic scientists were faced with the unenviable task of uncovering how two unidentified women had come to be killed, mutilated and dumped in a stream in rural Dumfrieshire. This case would come to be known as the Jigsaw Murders, owing to the painstaking job forensic scientists had in reassembling the bodies to arrive at a firm conclusion. 
the body parts had been organised to such a degree so that Glaister's team could begin their formal autopsies. There, deep in the halls of the University of Edinburgh's anatomy department, they discovered that the older of the two women had multiple injuries, including stab wounds and broken bones. One such bone that was found to be broken was the hyoid bone. It's small, U-shaped, and located at the front of the neck, just below the lower jaw. The fact it was broken suggested this victim had been strangled in addition to their other injuries. The second younger victim bore the classic signs of blunt force trauma. The investigators had two potential causes of death. However, they still had no clue who the victims were, let alone who'd killed them. The importance of a team-led investigation once more came to the fore as the Metropolitan Police Inspector, Jeremiah Lynch, entered the fold. The so-called jigsaw murders had become a national story shortly after the body parts of two unknown women were discovered in late 1935. To help solve the mystery, Dumfrieshire Police called on Scotland Yard, the headquarters of London's Metropolitan Police. Inspector Jeremiah Lynch was just finishing his morning cup of tea when the call for his services came in on the office telephone. Enthusiastic to assist, Lynch jumped into a police car and sped north to Scotland. When he finally got his hands on the evidence in the case, he found something seemingly insignificant that would crack the otherwise dwindling investigation. Inspector Lynch withdrew the materials found among the body parts from the evidence room. He flicked through the fabric-like materials, looked at photos of the body parts, and discovered cuttings from a newspaper, specifically the Sunday Graphic. He was informed that some of the body parts had been found wrapped in it. As he read the remaining sections of the newspaper, he quickly discovered this copy was a special souvenir edition. Promptly, he got onto the editors of the Sunday Graphic to find out where this particular edition had been distributed. What he heard could not have been more useful to the investigation. The souvenir edition of the Sunday Graphic was only made available to 3,700 homes in the Lancaster area. It was dated the 15th of September, 1935. This key piece of the puzzle presented the police with a window, a time within which the murders could have been committed, and a strong clue as to where the murders had been committed. Detectives, led by Inspector Lynch, started to close in on any missing persons reported in the Lancaster area on or after the 15th of September. Mary Jane Rogerson's parents hadn't seen their daughter for nearly two weeks. They were worried. It was unlike her. She was usually conscientious and contactable. They knew she worked for Buck Ruxton and his wife Isabella as their housekeeper. Their worries about their daughter's whereabouts were temporarily calmed when Buck turned up out of the blue at the Rogerson family home in the seaside town of Morecambe. He knocked on the front door and told them that Mary Jane had recently engaged in an affair with a local youth and had subsequently become pregnant. 
He explained that he and his wife had agreed to discreetly take her to have an abortion. Abortions were, he added, illegal, so they ought not to contact the police. More time passed without contact, so this time the Rogersons paid a visit to Buck. Once more, he tried to placate their growing anxiety, but with a differing far-fetched tale. He told Mary Jane's parents that their daughter and his wife had broken into his safe and stolen £30 before escaping together. Calmly, Buck reassured them that once that money had disappeared, the two women would likely return. But the Rogersons were suspicious. Not only was this a new version of the story altogether, it also did not tally with the Mary Jane that they knew. Accordingly, upon their return to Morecambe, the Rogersons made their way to the town centre, past their local bank, past the bakers, and into the police station. There, they filed a missing person report. It would be three more days before Buck Ruxton would report his wife Isabella missing. In Lancaster, gossip about the respected Dr. Ruxton was starting to circulate. News of his wife and housekeeper's disappearance had started to spread among neighbours and friends. And the gossip was starting to affect the seemingly steadfast surgeon. On one cool October day, he exploded through the doors of Lancaster Police Station, tears running down his cheeks. He complained that the rumours about his involvement in their disappearance were starting to affect business. One of the officers attempted to calm the agitated Ruxton, but by now the police were simply biding their time. By now, he was their prime suspect. When Inspector Jeremiah Lynch stumbled across a newspaper report explaining a young woman called Mary Jane Rogerson had gone missing, he promptly called Lancaster Police. The very day Buck had burst into the police station, the 9th of October, officers had paid a visit to the Rogerson household. They brought along with them some of the clothes found alongside the body parts in Domfrisha. As one of the detectives pulled out a blouse with a distinct patchwork repair in one of the armpits, Mrs. Rogerson wailed. Without hesitation, she identified it as belonging to Mary Jane. To add to their growing suspicions, inspectors from Lancaster Police had also, by this stage, heard a couple of shady accounts from neighbours. One Agnes Oxley, who regularly cleaned the Ruxton household, recalled how she was told by Buck on the 15th of September that her services weren't needed that day. When she arrived the following morning, expecting an easy day's cleaning, she found the house in a shambolic state. Just one detail among many that sprung to Agnes's mind was the bathtub. It appeared to have been deeply stained with a yellowish discoloration. When she saw Dr. Ruxton, she remarked on a bandage he was wearing on his hand. He told her he had simply jammed it in the door. Then there were the Ruxton's neighbours, a Mr. and Mrs. Hampshire. They told detectives that Buck had asked them to clean his house in preparation for an apparently impromptu redecoration. 
He couldn't do it because of his injured hand, of course. But he told the Hampshires the injury had occurred as a result of opening a tin of peaches a few days prior. Dr. Ruxton's story was falling apart in front of his eyes. But that wasn't enough for an arrest. The police needed more. The problem facing the investigating police was a big one. They were not yet able to identify the bodies of the victims with any certainty, even with the Rogersons identifying distinct clothing, even with the suspicious accounts coming from Buck's neighbours. It simply wasn't enough. But Professor James Cooper Brash came up with yet another ingenious solution. He dug into the case file and discovered that there were two portrait photographs of the alleged victims, Isabella Ruxton and Mary Jane Rogerson. He picked up the phone to the local commercial photographer, Cecil Thomas, and asked him to help with an innovative photographic reconstruction. Thomas had been paid just a year earlier by Buck to take a portrait of his wife, Isabella. Forensic science met the latest in photographic technique in a small Lancaster darkroom one October evening. Onto the original portrait photos, Cecil Thomas superimposed specifically reconstructed X-ray images of the skulls found under the bridge. He precisely positioned the layers and handed the resultant image to Professor Brash. The results were startling. Brash was overjoyed to discover the skulls and photos were a perfect match. If that wasn't enough, in a macabre nod to Cinderella's glass slipper, Professor Brash then created a cast of the victim's feet with a flexible gelatin-glycerin mixture. They were then slipped into the shoes of the alleged victims. Again, a perfect match. Police were finally ready to conclude the body parts found in Dumfriesshire did in fact belong to Isabella Ruxton and Mary Jane Rogerson. The groundbreaking science allowed Inspector Lynch to confidently arrest and charge Buck Ruxton with both murders and the mutilation of his wife and housekeeper. Monday the 2nd of March 1936 As the sun rose over a brisk Manchester morning, lawyers, judges and the British media readied themselves for the trial of the decade. Buck Ruxton was led into the dock of Manchester's High Court of Justice with his head drooped. From that dock, he proclaimed his innocence. The prosecuting barrister, a man called Joseph Cooksey Jackson, addressed the jury in his opening speech. It does not need much imagination to suggest what probably happened in that house. It is very probable that Mary Jane Rogerson was a witness to the murder of Mrs Ruxton, and that is why she met her death. You will hear that Mrs Ruxton had received before her death violent blows in the face, and that she was strangled. The suggestion of the prosecution is that her death and that of the girl Mary took place outside these rooms on the landing at the top of the staircase outside the maid's bedroom, because from that point down the staircase right into the bathroom, there are trails of enormous quantities of blood. 
I suggest that when she went up to bed, a violent quarrel took place, that he strangled his wife, and that Mary Jane Rogerson caught him in the act and had to die also. Mary's skull was fractured. She had some blows on the top of her head which would render her unconscious and then was killed by some other means, probably a knife. The jury heard yet more damning evidence from the prosecution. They heard how Ruxton had attempted to offload stained carpets to his neighbours in the days after his wife and housekeeper went missing. And they heard the harrowing details of a campaign of jealousy that amounted to a strong motive. After an 11-day trial, the jury unanimously agreed with the prosecution's case. It took them just over an hour to arrive at their verdict. Guilty on all charges. Buck Ruxton was duly sentenced to death. Perhaps bizarrely, Buck Ruxton held on to the support of many from his adopted home of Lancaster. A petition urging clemency for the popular surgeon gained 10,000 signatures. But it was not enough. On the morning of the 12th of May 1936, Albert Pierpoint made his way to Strangeways Prison. Pierpoint had made a name for himself as a prolific executioner, killing some 500 prisoners over a 25-year career. Shortly after he arrived, he greeted the naturally perturbed Ruxton. He was put to death by hanging. The day after Ruxton's execution, a Sunday newspaper published a brief handwritten note. It was purportedly penned by Ruxton to be published in the event he was put to death. The note said the following, I killed Mrs Ruxton in a fit of temper because I thought she'd been with a man. I was mad at the time. Mary Jane Rogerson was present at the time. I had to kill her. The irony of this confession appearing in a Sunday newspaper was not lost on the pioneering forensic investigators. After all, without the Sunday paper found with the disposed body parts, they would probably never have discovered the victims' identities. Buck Roxton would have gone on living and operating as a free and respected surgeon, perhaps for decades longer. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, And by me, Tracy Alexander. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help to spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime. Subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just 3 dollars per month.